very purposeful in the text that I chose to read this morning. We always do communion and we, we circle it around the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, and rightly so, because he spoke new meaning into the Passover meal that they had been celebrating for 12, 1300 years, because he, he was going to be that Passover lamb. It was going to be his blood that was going to seal the new covenant where the forgiveness of our sins would occur. His body would be broken for the forgiveness of our sins. He would be the one that would take upon himself sin of the world. But there's something that we tend to miss when we flatten out the Bible and we just try to read it as a direct beeline into heaven that if I say what I need to say and I accept Jesus and I go right into heaven, everything's good to go. But God was bringing together his entire story on the cross. In and through Jesus, he was not only redeeming humanity, he was redeeming the entire universe and his, his good world that had been wrecked with sin. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation groans with eager expectation for the sons of men to be revealed because they're waiting for God to redeem everything he's created. And one of the things that we miss is this atonement piece. And I went there because we've been dealing the last few weeks with the atonement theology that comes out of Isaiah 53. And we always kind of shrink that down to where Jesus died just for me so that I can go to heaven. Now, that's true. But he died to redeem everything God ever created. The entire story is that Jesus was the perfect human being who did everything that we could never do. And because of that, new creation is launched. And into the world, the church goes to proclaim the good news of who this Jesus is. Now, this atonement piece, it was a festival that they had every year where the two key things are the male goats. See, one male goat was kept pure, and that one will be sacrificed. This other little goat, so I'm taking my time to explain this because it's a little bit of a weird story, but this is what happened. The other goat, all of the sins of the people of Israel were passed on to that goat. And that goat was released outside of the temple and outside of the city gates to go wander off into the wilderness because he was taking all the sin and the uncleanness away from the people. He couldn't be sacrificed because he was the one whom they put all the sin on. And that comes to bear when Jesus is brought where? He's brought outside of the city, onto a hill, onto a cross, carrying the sins of all of humanity, of all of the world, with him. Yes, he is our Passover lamb. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed. But he is also what we commonly call the scapegoat, the one who took upon himself my sin and took it away from God's presence. That then begins to make the good sense of what we're going to learn on Good Friday when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God can't do anything but do that when he takes upon himself the sins of humanity. This is a beautiful story, one that is so deep and one that is so rich that the amount of things that Jesus has done for us besides just securing eternity for us, the redemption of everything God ever created is found in the atonement and the Passover coming together on the cross where Jesus died. And then ultimately, new creation being launched when he walked out of that tomb because death no longer has the victory. It can't. It can't because he took care of it 
So as we just gather around this this morning, he didn't give us a theory, he gave us a meal, as N.T. Wright likes to say. He gave us bread in a cup. And Brian, would you pray for the bread this morning? Do this as often as you eat in memory of me. And I'd like to pray for the cup this morning. Father, as we do come before you, remembering what it is Jesus did for us. He was faithful right to the very end. Even when he wrestled with not wanting to do what it is he knew he was called to do. He was always focused on whatever your will was for him. In the blood that was shed, Lord, each drop that was shed was shed upon the altar for our forgiveness. He took all of those filthy rags that we have and he washed them and he made them as white as snow as the prophet Isaiah tells us. Your plan from the beginning was to fix everything that we've ever broken so that we can walk in the newness of life. Your blood washes us clean. It is the once for all final sacrifice for us because Jesus willingly walked that road and allowed himself to be sacrificed on our behalf, on behalf of all of your creation. Father, we are thankful that we bear your image, that your Holy Spirit helps us every day and remind us, Lord, of the blood that was shed for the new covenant that sends us out into the world to share about who Jesus is. So we thank you, Lord, for the cup. In Jesus' name, do this as often as you drink in memory of me. Paul tells us as often as we eat of the bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we wait for that day, Lord, when you will come back and put everything back to right, where the new heaven and the new earth will be joined together and there will be peace and there will be light and there will be love forevermore. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. Okay. If you would be as so kind as to turn to Isaiah 53, we are going to be taking a look at verses 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9, titled this week's message, God's Sovereign Hand, Um, just trying to walk us through this story that uh, Isaiah gives us right in the middle of his, his prophetic writings. If we could all please stand, we'll go right into the scriptures this morning. God's sovereign hand, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would just make the book live to each and every one of us. Help us to dig down deep into it. Show us ourselves in light of your word and show us our Savior, Jesus. And make the book live to us, not just today, Lord, but every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Really want us to just wrestle through a couple of things and we'll, we'll work through it over the course of the next 30 or 35 minutes. Uh, it, it's really hard to see God's hand in the midst of injustice and suffering. I want to just throw that statement out there. It is very hard sometimes to see God's hand in the midst of injustice and suffering, but it is there. We have to be patient and see that it is there. And it's also just as hard to understand silence in the face of suffering. But Jesus did, and Jesus was. He did understand what silence said, and he remained quiet in the midst of all of the things that was going on with him. And this is what we're going to work ourselves through today as we pass through these three verses. Uh, Some of you know that I'm an early riser. Um, for various reasons. I get up usually around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. No, that's not normal, but that's okay. That's my world, so that is what it is. But there are uh, quite a few nights where I just simply have a hard time sleeping. So this past week, it was Thursday morning, I found myself laying in bed about 2 o'clock and just got irritated enough to where I'm not going to lay there and waste the day. I'm wide awake. I'm not going to go to sleep. So I wandered across the hall into my office and sat down at my desk so I could gather some thoughts and try and write down some different things that I needed to work out for the message and for the sermon. And two things popped into my head as I was sitting at my desk. Now, you've got to understand, this is my world, my weird, so just bear with me, okay? I looked at the clock, and I noticed that it was April 4th. So the first thing that pops into my head is the U2 song. Probably the second best album they ever put out behind the Joshua Tree was The Unforgettable Fire, a song called Pride in the Name of Love, in part written about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., which happened on April 4th, 1968. And then that led me to think about the letter from the Birmingham prison, which in college we were required in one of my English classes to study through that. It was a letter that Martin Luther King wrote when he was imprisoned in Birmingham, Alabama for a protest that they had led down there in regards to inequality and the injustices that were done to the people of color down there. It's weird, isn't it? all at 2 o'clock in the morning before my coffee's even done. But when I took a look at that, I'm thinking of the song and I'm thinking of the letter. One of the most frustrating things in life is to see injustice occur. To live in a world where injustice happens on a regular basis and people seem to be quite ambivalent to it. To watch the abuse and the struggle of innocent people in the midst of day-to-day life for no other reason than somebody just feels like being that way towards another human being. It's very difficult for us to wrestle through. Injustice happens all around us on a regular basis. To deny that is to not be living in the world that we live in. See, early morning, April 4, a shot rings out in the Memphis sky. Free at last. Yes, they took your life, but they could not take your pride. That's how the song starts. Bono singing about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., simply protesting for the rights of human beings to be treated with dignity and respect and honor. See, Martin Luther King Jr., having spent his years in his life, a short 39 years, 
he had spent as a nonviolent, quotes, silent, as it were, activist, was gunned down for his stand against inequality and injustice in this country. Five years earlier, 1963, he happened to be in Birmingham, Alabama, where he also ended up in prison for the things that he was doing down there. He penned a very long letter, it's like nine or ten pages long, to eight clergy who had questioned his purpose and his reason for doing what he was doing. Was it appropriate? Was it not appropriate? Should he have done these things? Should he not have done these things? And in part, what Martin Luther King Jr. wrote and I would encourage you to read the letter. It's a very good letter, but I have encapsulated a few things here. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement, calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. Now, that's the sound of a good leader. That's a statement of a leader who's confident in what he's supposed to do. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But he paused. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my hometown. He goes on to describe over the course of the next five or six pages the injustices that have been occurring throughout the years here in this country and why it is he feels the need to protest nonviolently and silently on behalf of people who don't have a voice. That's what he covers over the next five or six pages. And as he comes to an end, he concludes pretty much with this. There's a couple things after, but here's how it pretty much ends. Never before have I written so long a letter. I am afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? Sincerely, Martin Luther King Jr., 16 April, 1963. You see, the Apostle Paul, almost half of the letters that we have in the scriptures were written by the Apostle Paul, guess where? In a prison cell. In a prison cell. Peter also, from our first writing here this morning, Peter also found himself imprisoned on a number of occasions for the simple preaching of the gospel of Christ in the Roman kingdom. And in that first reading that I had for you from one of his letters, he quotes from our main text in Isaiah here, verses 7 through 9. And he quotes about the silence in the face of suffering. Something that we're all very, very uncomfortable with. Silence in the face of suffering. But not a just suffering. Instead, he tackles the unjust suffering. When somebody is doing good, the right thing, and they're being punished for it. That's what he's tackling. Seeking to share the good news and being vilified by those around you and mocked as a result of just simply standing for what is true and what is right and what is just. And sometimes for standing up for the rights of other human beings for no other reason than it's the right thing to do, we find ourselves getting mocked at times. Speaking up for the ones who cannot speak. This is not a social gospel. I want to toss that out to you. For those of us who want to attach it to some sort of political party and call it a social gospel, therefore we don't have to do it if we don't belong to that party, don't read the Bible the way you're supposed to. The Bible commands us and calls us to be a voice for those who have no voice, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, 
to stand against injustice when people cannot do it for themselves. This is what we are called to do. And if we as a church do not do those things and feel that it is the responsibility of the government, we are forsaking a command that God gives us. And we have to be very careful not to do that. Living the cruciformed life, that life that is Christ-centered and cross-centered at the same time, means that we bring the kingdom of God to bear against these things in this world. When there is an injustice that occurs, Jesus died for that injustice, and it is our responsibility as a church to stand up and say, that's wrong. Whether it fits our particular profile or it doesn't. Shaped and framed after the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the suffering servant, is what we, not just as individuals, are called to do, but as a church, little c and big c, we are commanded to do in this world. We are to be Jesus for people. See, in the midst of this vision that Isaiah the prophet was having here that we're we're looking at, among the things that he saw with this servant who he didn't know, he just knew that there was something going on here as God was giving him these visions, among the things that he saw was his lack of defense, which was odd. So Isaiah records it. His silence in the face of what Isaiah was seeing through this vision that God was giving him as a massive injustice. Isaiah records, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Boy, there's a big fat lesson some of us can learn. So he opened not his mouth. You see, we have been journeying down this road of God's divine love and God's divine grace upon us that was poured out for us in and through what Jesus did on the cross. We see through Jesus that God is acting on our behalf because we are unable to fix the very things that we have broken in this world. What Adam and Eve did, we inherited. We mastered. And Jesus fixed for us. See, we begin to see a pattern emerge as to how we are to confront and deal with the injustices of this world in this very short text. Man's inhumanity towards man and the constant damaging of his image bearers. This is why we are in this world. Not just so we can pray for Jesus to come back on the clouds and get us out of here. See, heaven's a wonderful thing, but it ain't the end of all things. We are resurrection people. We are new heavens and new earth people. Heaven's a wonderful thing, but read the end of the story. Revelation 21 and 22, bring heaven and earth back together. But until that happens, we are to be God's people for God's world, speaking out against things like this. When his image bearers are damaged for various reasons, whatever they may be, and there's an injustice that goes on, it is our responsibility to speak up. In a world which demands to be heard, to have our five minutes of fame and fire going on on the internet or our social media pages or whatever, so we can have the spotlight and capture somebody's attention, to secure our rights, whatever they may be, because we think that's the end all and that's going to fix everything. The cruciformed life leads us down an entirely different road. And it is not one that is always the most comfortable road to go on. You see, God, it seems here in Isaiah's passage, speaks volumes to human beings in absolute silence. 
He speaks volumes in silence, like a lamb led to the slaughter. We talked last week of Jesus not being that dumb little lamb animal, totally oblivious to what was going on, unaware of what was going to happen to him. But rather that Jesus was that willing sacrifice. Not only did he know what was going to happen to him, he knew what was going to happen after that happened to him. Because he knew the beginning from the end, and he willingly walked that road when he could have done it any other way. See, Isaiah is drawing drawing that out for us in these verses. He's mapping that road for us with the emphasis on the fact that this servant knew what was coming. He fully understood that what he was getting tossed upon him, what was being thrown upon him, he did not deserve. But he was willing to take it. And not only willing, but he did so without ever saying a word. He stood in silence. He answered only the questions that were true. And he stood in silence. Not just as the lamb in the temple, or just as the lamb in the temple, so Jesus would walk that road of sacrifice. So Jesus would walk the road of sacrifice, willingly submitting himself to the sovereign hand of God and to the injustices of man. That's the tension that we have a hard time with. He submits himself to the sovereign hand of God and in order for that to work, the injustices of mankind against another human being are brought to bear. As hard as it is to grasp sometimes, even the horror of the cross is under the sovereign hand of God. As we see that picture, as we read these texts, that too is under the sovereign hand of God. How could God do this? Why would he do this? How could he let this happen? He could have done it so many different ways. That's evil, and I can't believe in a God like that. Those are all questions and all statements that come up that people wrestle through with as we take a look at texts like this. How could a God do that? They're genuine responses of people trying to make sense of what is going on here. And we can bring answer to those questions. You see, it's not just God doing as though he somehow forced this Jesus to do these things and to follow through with this task because we screwed up and God had to come up with a plan B. From the very beginning, this is exactly what was supposed to happen so that all of creation can be redeemed and that God's good world could be brought back together where heaven and earth could once again be together like it was in the garden. This wasn't a plan B. You see, this wasn't just to take care of his anger. This was to bring his people back home. Both things had to occur. The atonement. The sin being sent outside the camp, the Passover lamb, so that you can be free. Both of these converge. You see, God isn't like us. His ways are not our ways. This is why sometimes these things don't make sense. See, we think these ways. He doesn't. We look at something like this and we see the absolute injustice and ask where God could ever be in it. But you see, his ways aren't ours. He doesn't think like we do. This Jesus was no dumb sacrificial animal. He was no puppet. Under God's sovereign hand, Jesus willingly took upon himself God's justice and gives us the example of how it is we are supposed to live. See, we see it as an injustice because he didn't deserve it, right? 
That's how we see this. But we are far too slow to see that this particular injustice against this Jesus of Nazareth brings about our justification before the God of all creation. Because we don't deserve what we get. See, that's what makes this divine love and divine grace. There's nothing we bring to the table because there's nothing we have to bring to the table because Jesus brought it all, every bit of it. All we have to do is walk under the authority of that and say, yes, Lord. He did this for us. John tells us then Jesus in the garden when they were looking for him on the night he was betrayed. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, the Roman guards and the temple guards, whom do you seek? He knew. He wasn't hiding. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Alec Mater says this, that the servant who knew all things beforehand went to his death with a calm silence that reflected not an uncomprehending, but a submitted mind and tongue. The point here is the contrast between the silence of ignorance and the silence of deliberate self-submission. He wasn't just a dotard being pushed along. He was in silent self-submission to the plan of God that had been decided since eternity began. He knew exactly what was coming. His selflessness in contrast to self-absorption, is seen as Isaiah continues in verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? I have a note in my Bible that I have here that I think is good. Uh, Not being fat-headed, I just think it's good. We think God is unjust toward us. That's the statement I put down as I read this verse. We think God is unjust towards us. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away, this Jesus. This is so very powerful and sad. Humanity destroyed their king, and yet he rose to redeem them. Humanity destroyed their king, and yet he rose to redeem them. He died once for all. Who of his generation, Isaiah says, who of his generation ever thought of the fact that he was going to be cut down in his prime? Only three short years in ministry. What an epic failure. Twelve knuckleheads who couldn't get out of their own way. Before he even leaves the garden, one of them betrays him. Another one is fully convinced that he's going to go right to the cross with him and then chickens out when a little 12-year-old girl says, I know your accent. He's crucified. By the standards of this world, he is an abject failure and he's not anybody we would ever hire to lead anything let's be honest from our standards jesus couldn't get out of his own way and yet and yet he was no failure at all but without descendants and without protest as he was struck for the transgressions of others you see this is what peter is trying to tell us suffering in the cruciformed way That way that Jesus suffered. God's sovereign will for us is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, I'm very sorry if this is uncomfortable for you. This is uncomfortable for every human being, and it ought to be. I don't make any apologies for that. This ought to be uncomfortable for us because we are so self-centered we can't get out of our own way. And the Bible tells us that we are not to be that way. 
We're so hung up on all of our own little ticks and everything else that we've got going on and what we want and what we need and what we have to have that we forget that we are commanded by God to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. You see, in the context that Peter has, and I read the whole text this morning, he's teaching the church how we're to be submitted to the powers that be and the leaders over them, even if they are evil, most especially if they're evil. And that's an uncomfortable thing. Read any of Bonhoeffer's writings, as you know, he's one of my favorites. And it will be very clear to you that he wrestled with this. How do we submit to the very authority that is as inhumane as you can be? Well, we have some help here. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So there's one of the rubs, because the question then is, is that what if the law of the land doesn't square with God's law? Well, here's where we are supposed to act. That's where Jesus helps us with the example that he gives us. Silent, nonviolent protests against injustices of all kinds. Fat-mouthed knuckleheads screaming on the corner. Foolishness. And then attaching themselves to a church is not the example we have in Scripture. Silence. You see, all laws must square with God's laws. Martin Luther King says in the letter from Birmingham, one has not only the legal, but the moral responsibility to obey just laws. So I don't care if you like the law or not, if it's just and if it's legal and it's right, we are commanded by God to obey that law, regardless of whether we like the person in office or not. It's not about worldly politics. It's about kingdom politics. But here's, the, here's, the, here's where it turns. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. But we don't do it the way the world does it. We don't go out there looking like a big knucklehead like the rest of the world does, making all kinds of noise, attaching ourselves to foolishness and saying, this is the way we're going to get what we want. That's not the pattern that Jesus gives us. There's going to be times when you are going to suffer injustices because of who you are and what you believe. Now, I know in America that's not something we like to hear. But for goodness sakes, let's get over ourselves. Let's get over ourselves. There will be times when we are going to struggle and we are going to suffer because of what we believe. Not only is that to be expected according to the scripture, but in the eyes of God, that is a gracious thing that happens. It's a beautiful thing that happens. Peter continues when he says, for this is a gracious thing. See, I'm not that smart. I just took it right out of the scripture here. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow for suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So if I'm an idiot and I get in trouble for it, okay. It's no credit to me. I should have known better, right? I leave that with you to wrestle through. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, we weren't left here as the church to do nothing, to gather here on Sunday in the safety of our building. We were gathered here to learn what we're to do there, out in the world. Because somebody somewhere has to say, here's where the line is drawn. 
And you don't go any farther than this. It's not okay to kill babies. It's not okay to beat somebody up you disagree with. It's not okay to take away the rights of another human being for the sake of another. It's not okay to sell a human being into the sex trade so that you can make money. These are not okay things. Somebody has to say, no. That's why the church exists. Because the world doesn't know what his name is from Monday to Tuesday. But the church does. It's right here. So we stand against those things, but we do so in the way that Jesus did. Why? Because it's very hard to argue with somebody who doesn't talk. I know that. Because when I'm in an argument with some people, they don't talk. So I just rail against the darkness, looking like an idiot, until I finally discover, well, you're the idiot, and move on. But anyway, back to here we are, because that's a whole sermon in and of itself on how we control the tongue. That's James. We'll get to that at some point. Anyway, we can't live in this world as we should, again, without expecting some sort of pushback. God calls us as his image bearers to be his people in and for his world. We need to love the unlovable because we are the unlovable at times. We subvert the culture of hate from within that culture. Now, I want to say this, and I want us to really understand this. I've got just a few more minutes left, so bear with me. Loving the unlovable and subverting the culture of hate from within that culture by living the cruciform life of Jesus. That means bringing divine love into a place that doesn't have divine love. We cannot change a culture that we are not in. You see, Paul stayed in the Roman culture, even though that meant he went to prison for saying, treating people this way is wrong. There is a king and there is a Lord and Caesar ain't it. Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's going to get me put in prison. That's fine. But this is how it's supposed to be. We subvert the culture from within. 392, 393, the Roman Empire collapsed. Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. It took almost 400 years, but from within, it was subverted by faithful presence within the culture of people who call Jesus their own, loving the unlovable, going into Rome when the plague was being poured out to save people who were sick, taking little kids that weren't wanted and were left out in the graveyard on the hill. They would go and they would adopt them. That's what the church did. Read about it. They subverted the culture by doing what was right in the midst of what was wrong. They didn't hide in the catacombs all the time. Speaking the truth in love when it needs to be. You see, Jesus endured more than he, we ever will. Jesus endured more than we ever will for our sakes. For our sakes, adding insult to injury, added to the suffering for us was the pain of unsympathetic people. This is the gospel. He was mocked as he hung on the cross, and the very people that he came to save made fun of him. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. No, you won't. And neither would we, if we're honest with ourselves. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. See, and that brings the pain of verse 9 into the open. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, the innocent man numbered among the thieves, buried in a rich man's tomb. Our mind, if you know anything about the Bible, goes directly to the two people hanging on either side of Jesus into into Joseph's tomb. That's where mine instantly goes. Why? Because even then we see divine love and grace being poured out. After all of the garbage that was given to Jesus and poured upon Jesus, one of the criminals who was hanged or who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Still, with his last breath, he's still asking Jesus, just give me what I want my way. Give me what I want my way. No. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? See, so he's recognized the fact that he has sinned. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Grace, faith. This guy had time for one thing and one thing only, to recognize that Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't earn nothing. He just simply said, remember me. And Jesus said, will do. Don't think you have to perform. At some point throughout the day, Jesus captured this man's heart. How? By the way in which Jesus conducted himself in the midst of the trial that he was in. By the way he walked that road to Calvary. By the way in which in silence and in innocence he was tacked up. By the way in which when they dropped that cross in that hole, he simply looked over the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. At some point, this thief looked at that man and said, there's something about him that's different. And then he probably had all kinds of things brought back to his mind thanks to the Holy Spirit. And before it was all over, he didn't want to miss the boat. And he said, Jesus, remember me. See, Jesus' death took care of the worst injustice this world has ever seen. And that wasn't even the crucifixion. The worst injustice this world has ever seen is the injustice that is done against our creator when we rebel, feeling that he is not sufficient for us. That's the worst injustice in this world. When we rebel against the creator who has done this for us because we feel that he is not sufficient for us. That's the worst injustice because of everything he has done. Jesus became the perfect substitute. He became our voice before the throne of God, the scriptures tell us. He stood in for us and now he is no longer silent. The Bible tells us that he intercedes every single day for us on our behalf before the Father in heaven. How can we forsake 
such a call as that. How can he do that? Because Jesus was perfect in suffering and death. And as the worship team comes up, please. How do we not submit to such a perfect thing as that? Just put our minds at ease and at rest for a minute and let's just think on this. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, yes? That's what the scripture tells us. So there was a moment on that day when three men died. At some point, the thief on the left died. The thief on the right died. And the Messiah in the middle died. And at some point, they had to walk that road. And I suspect, if you'll afford me a little license here, I I suspect as he approached the gates of heaven, the angel there looked at this man and asked him, do you deserve to be here? Because he probably didn't look the part. Do you deserve to be here? And the thief looked at him and said, without missing a beat, I don't know if I deserve to be here. But this much I do know. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. And what more than that does any human being on this planet need? Because the man on the middle cross has already told every single one of us, we are welcome to come. All we need to do is submit ourselves to him and come. Let's stand. Those who are willing to pray, please, if you just take your spots. Just be in silence for a second. I think I've said more than enough today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for opening up the scriptures for us. If we need prayer today, encourage us to step out. But help us to sing this last song, Lord, with our hearts and with our minds and with our mouths in a way that brings glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of
Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless faith this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on the deeply, deeply we are loved, even in the midst of all of our shortcomings and the things that we struggle with. Your word tells us that we are deeply loved, loved to the point of your own son coming to ensure that we could find our way back home. It is in the Christ of love or the love of Christ that we stand. Help us, Lord, to walk in that today as we leave here not only to stand in the love of Christ, but to share the love of Christ. For you so loved your world, Lord, that you gave your only son. Remind us of that each day this week, Lord. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. If you want to continue to worship, you may come up front to do so. He's still